0: Hello, this is Dr. John Peebles. Thank you for joining me in this high altitude conversation where we have the chance to talk to the decision makers, the people at the top, the chairman and chief executives who've made the decisions that affect our organizations and indeed often our very way of life. I hope that listening to them and their thoughts as they articulate problem and solution provides something to reflect on and perhaps utilize or model in your own management style or approach. These people are recognised as our top problem solvers, and the one feature they all have in common is recognised management success in organisations of substance. Our guest today was born and educated in Auckland, completing a law degree in 1967. He worked for a period in the profession before entering public service and successfully standing for New Zealand Parliament as a candidate for the New Zealand National Party in the Birkenhead electorate in 1975. A long-time member of the National Party organisation, he was clearly seen as a future minister and leader, and within three years of his election to Parliament, he was appointed by the then Prime Minister Robert Muldoon to the post of Attorney General, the youngest ever to hold the role, and Minister of Justice. Six years later, he became Deputy Leader of the Party and Deputy Prime Minister. In that same year, National lost power in a snap general election. Muldoon was seen to be out of touch by the younger members of the party and was challenged for the leadership by our guest today, who took out the contest. In a difficult post-Muldoon period, there followed a further leadership challenge, which our guest lost, and subsequently he retired from Parliament in 1987. It was post-Parliament, however, that he began the most interesting period of his career, working commercially in numerous board and advisory roles, serving as our permanent representative to the United Nations and winning a place for New Zealand on the Security Council of that organisation. He became New Zealand's representative to the Palestinian Authority and acted as Special Advisor to the Minister of Foreign Affairs. He has held and influenced at national and international level through many roles, too numerous to mention. He's received recognition and honours for his public service that range from an honorary doctorate to knighthood and, significantly, has a glacier in Antarctica that bears his name. This recognises his work on the International Whaling Commission, particularly his advocacy that led to the establishment of a whale sanctuary in the Southern Ocean. Sir Jim Maclay, thank you for joining us and welcome to High Altitude. Jim, law's obviously been a big part of your life and although you've not had a long career in the profession, it seems to have guided much of your thinking and your actions. Tell us a little about early childhood and how you turned up in the law.
1: Early childhood was very conventional to be perfectly honest uh, and the greatest influence on me were my parents uh, but uh, there was there was nothing unusual about my childhood that uh, sort of marked me out in any particular way not only did i have good parents who taught me good things but also i had the luck of of teachers who identified What they saw as a little bit of talent here, or the ability to do something, and they took you out of the conventional and made you just a little bit, a, a little bit unusual and a little bit different, and that that was a very real influence on me as well. Why did I go into the law? I guess uh, it was a misunderstanding to some extent about what the law was. I mean, the image of the law is a lawyer standing in a courtroom and addressing a judge or a a jury. And, of course, that's only a small fraction of the practice of the law. But I guess I had that image and I had developed some skills uh, in public speaking and the like and thought, well, that would be where I might uh, be suited. And so I enrolled in law school. Uh, I enrolled on my 17th birthday uh, at the law school. And uh, in those days, it was just the the New New Zealand University had just been abolished and replaced by the individual standalone universities. So I was one of the first students of the University of Auckland.
0: You came out of King's College, though, prior to that,
1: didn't you? I did. And that, was, that gave me great opportunities. A wonderful music teacher there, Lynn Saunders, and his wife, Helen, who produced musicals and, and who uh, focused a lot on the school choir. Singing
0: at King's in those days was a big thing. He became a major music critic too, didn't he? Well known in the, the newspapers.
1: LCMS in the New Zealand Herald, correct? Uh, uh, Lynn Saunders, and he he had a therefore had an enormous range of understanding of the of the music world ballet too. He used to review ballet for the Herald, uh, and he passed that on to us. We sang Messiah. We sang Bach's Matthew Passion. We we sang we sang new shows that had never been performed anywhere else in the world. Uh, Benjamin Britten's Let's Make an Opera uh, was first performed on the stage in in Auckland, New Zealand, at King's College under Lynn and Helen Saunders.
0: You didn't see music as a career, though. No,
1: no. Uh, in fact, Lynn Lynn was always worried that uh, the kids who. Performed on the stage might think that that was a career for them, and he, he regarded it as a as as a, um, uh, a a dead end road for most people. But of course, there are one or two great talents who come out, uh, and and the King's College Glee Club, uh, as it was called, didn't just produce good uh, good musicians, also produced good artists. Don Benny right. who used to do the scenery, so he came
0: through the same came through the same thing, ah. and. Would, he have, would Saunders have been one of the most influential people in your early part of your life? Uh, outside my parents, yes. Yeah. Uh,
1: he, he would be definitely an influence. But a lot of good teachers. We had we had the fortune to have good teachers, uh, great teachers who influenced their, their students. Right. And then on to university, of course, and, and law. Yes. And uh, there I got involved first in debating. Uh, I represented the university at... Uh, at debating, and
0: uh, I also got involved in politics. Right, and politics. Now let's just start with politics. Was it politics at the university level, or was it Young Nationals that you really got dragged into? I was never really involved in the Young Nationals. Uh, by chance, the Auckland
1: Central branch of the party had fallen into uh, uh, disarray. you might say there was no one really interested. It was a Labour held seat, uh, so. Um, we, we effectively, the University National Club, took it over. So we were immediately involved in the senior branches of the organisation. We ran an election in the three weeks after we finished our, our
0: finals. Did you see yourself as a candidate at that stage, no, at some no, stage? No, no.
1: I, I enjoyed the organisation. I still do. Um, I enjoyed being involved in the organisation uh, and it was an opportunity to branch away from the law which I was still heavily involved in. I saw myself as as a lawyer, uh, and always would be. But I would have this very interesting side activity of of politics. Right, but you didn't did you see yourself as a litigator, or in some other aspect. Primarily a litigator, but not exclusively. Right. Um, I had a small law practice which I built up, uh, and uh, you had to you had to be a jack of all trades right. in those days. But primarily, I was a litigator.
0: Right. And so, Parliament, how did you finish up running for national?
1: 1972 election, uh, national uh, lost and Labour won under Norman Kirk. And I suddenly realised that whereas previously I'd thought about maybe moving my way up through the organisation, I suddenly realised that the, the instruments of policymaking were vested in members of Parliament. Right. They were the ones who had their hands on the levers right. and they were the ones who could make changes. And if I if I wanted to see change and change for the better, then I really had to be willing to stand for Parliament.
0: Because I remember McCulley saying something about he stood in the Young Nationals because he thought, he went to the Young Nationals because he thought that was where they could influence things, realised it wasn't, and went to the senior national part of the party, went to Dominion Executive and went on further because he still couldn't find the influence, and one day the President walked in and said, this is what we're going to do, and he realised where the influence was. Uh, It was a bit of a progression, I I I, I, I had that same
1: progression, and indeed you might say it went further, because I, I... I used to, When I was a member of a branch committee, I thought, well, one day I'll find out where, who really runs this party. <laughs> then I became a member of the, the electorate committee, and I thought, well, one day I'll find out who runs it. And then I became involved at the divisional level, and I was actually, in my 20s, uh, deputy chairman of the Auckland division, as it was then known. And I thought, one day maybe I'll find out who runs this party, and... I just kept moving up. Eventually, I became
0: leader, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I was still asking the question.
0: So, how did you get in on the North Shore? Was it actually in, you came through, didn't you, and took over that um, that post on the North Shore? There was a vacancy there, wasn't there, at the time? Someone was standing down, or were you, did you just compete the? You competed, and it was a full. Yeah,
1: no, I, I, um, uh, there, there was a quite a, a active branch in Birkenhead, right, as it then was. It's now called Northcote. Uh, virtually the same seat. And uh, the very active branch It had, had done well in the two preceding elections. Don McKinnon had been the candidate. Right. He decided not to stand again. Uh, so it, you're right in that sense. It, it opened up the opportunity for another candidate to come in. Uh, and I was one of four candidates. Murray McCulley was another right. who sought that nomination. And um I won, won the nomination, and then I had 12 months of campaigning to win a Labour-held seat. We were up against a, a, a member of Parliament, Norman King, who'd been there for 21 years. I Norman King. He'd been there a long time. He'd been there a long time, and he was an excellent local MP. If there was a San Pit at a kindergarten to be opened, Norman King would be there to do it. Right. And I don't mean that in any derogatory sense, because I tried to follow his example.
0: Right. And... When you went in, of course, it was a first-past-the-post system, wasn't it, early on in the piece? The yes. It's changed now to MMP. And I don't like MMP, I've got to say.
1: I think Members of Parliament should represent an area and represent the people in that area. And uh, we, we have Members of Parliament who, in some cases, no one's ever heard of.
0: Right. Um, not, even, not, not even in a local area. Right. And, in fact... Some people say the difficulty is with MMP. you've got compromise before you've started to compromise. Yes, very much compromise. Um, you get a situation where a political
1: party can get elected. For instance, the Labor Party has been was elected on a promise to introduce a capital gains tax. I think of capital gains tax as a thoroughly bad idea, but that was their policy and they became the government. You'd reasonably expect that they would be able to implement it. But no, a party with 5% of the vote was able to stop them. Right now, that
0: to me is not democracy. Right. So, if you had the choice today and you could write the paper today, would you go for MMP or would you go for first past the post?
1: I would go for first past the post. I still. I mean, no system is perfect, but I. I, I do firmly believe that members of parliament should should represent a particular area and the people who live in that area. Uh, the fact is, of course, that. Um, uh, that system, the first past the post, did throw up situations where a party with fewer votes could sometimes assemble enough seats to become the government, and that was one of the complaints uh, about MMP. If, if about first past the post, if we really do want to reflect the popular vote as well as the local vote then I think there's probably a case for having an upper house of some sort that is elected on a proportional basis. Right. Um, or maybe not an upper house, a second house. Right. Uh, a lot of people think that the US Senate is an upper house. In fact, it is. they are co-equal. The, co- right. Uh, the House of Representatives has the same legal status as the Senate.
0: Is it possible under the MMP system for a party to win the majority vote?
1: I very much doubt it. Uh, we haven't had a majority vote party uh, government uh, certainly since the since the end of the Second World War and probably earlier.
0: Now, you came in and, of course, that must have been a bit of a, a shock to the system when you first went into Parliament, was it, when you arrived with a lot of aspirations and thinking about here's the decision-making process? I'd been close enough to the system to know its frustrations.
1: So I wasn't that surprised to learn that there were... That, that, uh, to find myself on a very steep learning curve but still, yes, it can be very frustrating and you've only got to read books by people who uh, lived alongside me through that period. Um, Hugh Templeton, for example, wrote an excellent book called All Honourable Men. Uh, Marilyn Waring has just published a book uh, uh, about her political years. And in both cases, you can sense the frustrations. But uh, the frustration is simply an indication that you've, you, you're trying to persuade a lot of people to, to agree uh, to a particular course of action. Right. Uh, and that's never going to be easy.
0: Right. Nor should it be. Right. So it's a, it's a it's a good process in terms of of running a country. It's a very good process.
1: It's a way of working your way through the through an issue, identifying the problems, trying to solve them so that they don't become real issues further further down the track. Uh, I I don't mind the idea of having to work hard with others to achieve perhaps a compromise which might in turn lead to good public policy
0: you've had both of course you've had the, the the political career and then you've gone on to do the commercial career and you made the decision relatively early compared with a lot of people but the political thing if you had your time again would you go back in there Yes, I, uh,
1: I don't think there's anything I've done in my life that I wouldn't go back and, uh, and do again. I'd probably try and do it better, um, but that's <laughs> That's that, something that's we'd life. all aspire to, yes. Yeah. But uh, no, I, I think there is every good reason to look back and say, uh, those are things I'd like to do again, but only do them better.
0: Some of the challenges, obviously, for a politician is balance, isn't it? It's, you've got people coming at you from all angles, and you've got a mandate that's a party mandate that you've also got to be conscious of. How do you balance it all? It is very difficult to balance those things, but you've got to do it. If you if you want
1: to achieve something, you're not going to do it by yourself. Right. You might lead, and in that sense you do it by yourself, but others have to follow you right. and be willing to back you. Right. A, a single Member of Parliament, Jim McClay, has no right to go into Parliament and say my vote alone will determine this particular policy item. I've got to get a majority of the members of Parliament to agree on that.
0: Although Winston Peters might have a different view from that might and uh, in terms of having a, a single a single voice if you like he might represent a party but he's almost a single voice isn't he? That's a, a peculiarity of his particular party. Right. Uh, at
1: the end of the day, however, he's still got to pull the votes along with
0: him. That's right. It doesn't matter. He was a National Party uh, expat, we could say, I suppose, at some stage couldn't, wasn't he as well?
1: Yes, he was a National Party Member of Parliament and a minister yeah. uh, and could still have been if he wanted
0: to, yes. but he chose uh, a different course. When you're looking or talking to young people, and you must get this question quite a bit, do, do people ask you, would you recommend this as a career, going into politics? I wouldn't recommend it as a career, but if someone asked
1: me, do you think I should do it? I'm thinking of standing for parliament. Right. I would certainly, I'd ask them a few questions, you know, why do you want to stand for parliament? There, there are some people who, who were in parliament with me and in parliament today, and I really ask, why, why do you want to be there? What, 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 are, you, what are you achieving? Right. Uh, is it just the ambition of having the letters MP after your name uh, or are you there really to, to achieve something? For a purpose. But, but assuming that the, the questioner uh, gave the right answers to those questions, right. I would encourage that person to stand uh, stand or to become in some way involved in public life.
0: Right. Is it, is it a career that young people should move into or is it something that people should come in mid, mid-career? I certainly
1: don't like the idea that somebody... Goes to university, then gets a job in a minister's office or in a, research, a, a political research unit, and then next minute is standing for parliament. Uh, there's no real experience of life right. in that career path. Right. Uh, so I would say, yes, definitely, you, you, you've you got to bring something more with you uh, to parliament or to, to a candidacy. Right. You've got to bring something more to it than just the fact that you learned about it at university and then applied it in some minister's office.
0: National's going through a really interesting period at the moment, obviously, and there's going to be uh, discussion over the next two years whether we like it or not about leadership. But, the, of course, that's been thrown up a little bit by the New Zealand gentleman saying that he, he wants to come in or would like to come in. Is there a path for that sort of thing? And if so, how does... Because it almost assumes one would come straight in from a public perception and take over, and yet that's not what happened in the case of John Key, is it, or other people who've come to the party?
1: It certainly didn't happen with John Key, but he he, he didn't arrive saying, I want to be Prime Minister <laughs> uh, or I expect to be leader. Right. Uh, I, I think that anyone who believes that they can just announce their intentions and that they will come uh, begging uh, is uh, mistaken. Matthew Houghton. Right. Wrote a very good article uh, admonishing those who think that they can just announce their intention and, and it'll be
0: delivered to them. So it's highly unlikely is really, is there?
1: No, no, I'm not saying it's highly unlikely. I'm just so, simply saying that, that that's not the way that leads to to political fame and fortune.
0: right. Are there any qualities that you look for if you if you I mean if you're judging a politician, what are the qualities you look for? First of all, I think the person has to believe in something. Right. Uh,
1: and I'm not saying what it should be. I mean, if, if you of if you a centre-left disposition, it'll be different from someone who's of a centre-right disposition. Right. But you've got to believe in it. Right. And you've, got to, and you've got to understand it and you've got to be able to verbalise it. You've got to be able to explain it. So if someone says, what do you stand for? You've actually got an answer to that question. Uh, and that applies to anyone involved in politics, Uh They might just simply say, I believe in that particular candidate and I want to work uh, to get him or her elected. It may be as simple as that. It may not have a philosophical base. Right. But in the case of the MP himself or herself, they really do have to have something they genuinely believe in and can articulate.
0: Right. And it's obviously a a very competitive process. I mean, you came through that post-Muldoon era, which was always going to have a huge amount of disruption, wasn't it? easy um, to come through that I suspect. Brian Tallboys said that um, something along the lines that if
1: Rob is ousted he'll grab the sila- pillars of the temple and drag them down with him. <laughs> and I think there was a lot of truth in that.
0: There was a fair bit of that. But it probably geared you up very well for your next career, didn't it? Which is really the commercial and corporate career that came beyond that. Well, there was nothing like
1: Muldoon in the corporate world. No.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, intellectually, the man was, of course, extremely capable, wasn't he? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Rob Muldoon was one of the
1: most um, intellectually able persons I've, I've ever encountered. Um, and... He had an incredible ability to articulate it in simple, clear, uh, uncomplicated language. If you go back and read the speeches he gave, you won't find many two or three-syllable words. You won't find any complicated words. I remember some uh, uh, another member of Parliament. I won't even bother to name him, um, who, who took pride in the in the in the elaborate language that he used right. uh, and and articulated. Uh, Muldoon
0: was exactly the opposite, and that's how why he was such a good communicator. Was a great orator, and I remember certainly some were saying something. The one that always sticks with me is that if New Zealanders left for Australia, it would raise the IQ of both countries. I think was the... well. He
1: had a, he had a, he had a very good wit. He had a comedian's sense of timing. Right. Uh, he could deliver a line that was that if you read it on paper, it was just bland, but just by pausing in the right uh, place at the right time and in the right manner.
0: Right.
1: Uh, was incredibly funny
0: and, and had a period where his leadership was very highly respected too, wasn't it? Yes, in the in
1: the particularly the first three years, seventy-five to seventy-eight. Uh, those of us who had campaigned behind him and, frankly, been brought into parliament by his leadership, right, to be under no illusions about that. In the nineteen seventy-five election, um, uh, had considerable admiration not only for his political abilities but also for his. Um, uh, the economic policies he was trying to pursue at that time. It was only later that he started to believe that he could
0: make water, economic water run uphill. Right. I, I think uh, someone made the uh, comment to me once that the trouble Muldoon had was that he chopped off so many branches around him he didn't realise he was chopping off the final branch he was sitting on, which probably... Uh, and obviously lost a lot of support over a period of time, didn't he, gradually? Is that a normal process? Does it filter away from a leader? It, I wouldn't say it was a normal
1: process, but it is a typical process. Yeah. Uh, the fact is that um, someone gets elected on a high tide, and gradually, you've only got to look at the, st- the electoral statistics to see this. Gradually, over a succession of elections, that support ebbs away. You, in in, in government, the most difficult thing to do is to say no. Right. And when you say no to somebody, you at least potentially create a situation where that person says, well, I'll go to the other party and see if they'll do
0: it uh,
1: uh, on my behalf. So you create
0: your own opposition. You create
1: your own opposition. Mm. Uh, So gradually over a two or three election cycle, which is one of the reasons why we don't have governments that last more than three uh, three full terms, because they just gradually um, say no to the people that they had previously
0: been supportive of. We have a thir- three-year term, of course, and one of the few countries, I think, that does have a three-year term, aren't we? Oh, no, Austra- Australia has uh, has a three-year S- three th- term. They have
1: a three-year term, and I don't think they suffer from that. I think they
0: have is some it other long abs- enough?
1: Keith Holyoke used to say that um, uh, four years is far too short for a good government and three years is far too long for a bad <laughs> one. <laughs> and he had that right too, And yeah. And, I, I mean, that... that Typifies it. I, I don't see a great problem with three years. Muldoon used to argue, and we keep coming back to him, don't we? Uh, we, uh, he used to argue that, um, particularly under the first past the post system, that effectively you elected a government that could do what it liked. Right. He didn't use the term dictatorship, but I guess that was what he was referring to. In other words, he, he, they have a parliamentary majority, and provided they keep that majority, they, they had, had a di- mandate. They had a man- no, more than a mandate. They could do what they liked. Right. And he he argued that the one thing that kept that government in check was the fact that the ballot box was well within sight.
0: They had three years and never they had to three, go back.
1: Yes, and uh, it, it was... It, was long enough to be able to do things, but not so long that the, the electorate would
0: forget. Because you spend the first year probably congratulating yourselves having I mean, got there, and the second year doing something, and the third year starting to worry about whether you. Well, if you spend time
1: congratulating or... yourself, you uh, very quickly uh, uh, become a loser.
0: Right. Come come to the the part I think that's really interesting in your career, and that's post post government, because you've come into one of these issues with conservation and climate change and. And I look back on climate change and I think scientists started picking up this thing two decades ago and arguing about it. We've now got schoolchildren telling us about it. Um, how are politicians going to handle this? And and what what will happen? Are we doing fast enough?
1: The schoolchildren thing is interesting because a generation ago, or barely a generation ago, they were worried about nuclear war. Right. Uh, and probably before that, they were worried about conventional war because that was what they the generation uh of the 1940s um so it, it's typical uh, and good that young people are interested in and concerned about these issues i've got no idea what the next one will be right. but there will be something that's different from today politically are we geared to deal with climate change climate change is a risk issue it's pure and simple risk which, of course, is what insurance companies have managed right. for, for hundreds of years. And they've actually managed mm-hmm. climate risk because that was one of the things that they insured against. Was, Absolutely. Were, were climate... Rain and climate and earthquakes, and, earthquakes and... Floods and, yeah. and and what have you. So there's a lot of experience out there right. in managing risk. Um, and I think we should actually approach it as a risk management issue. Uh, I don't like it when I hear somebody say the science is settled. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not a, a client skeptic. But I don't like it when people say that the science is settled because that's what they told Galileo. Right. Um, <laughs> and there's always room for science to be reviewed. But I think there is enough scientific evidence for uh, for us to say we've got to do something to manage this risk.
0: Right. And because, uh, I mean, take Antarctica. I know you've got a glacier named after you. Is it still, still there or is it melted? <laughs> <laughs> A mountain would have
1: probably been better, but but it happens to be on that side of the Antarctic that um, isn't too prone to uh, erosion from climate. So it should be there for a while. It should be there for a while. How did, that, how did that happen? I have no idea. Um, i received a letter in the mail one day uh, from the new zealand place names board and the uh, u.s jointly u.s geographic names board saying that this glacier had been named after me right. uh, in recognition of my work at the international whaling commission and particularly right. in support of the uh, southern ocean sanctuary which uh, uh,
0: was agreed when i was on the commission whaling is actually probably one of the the i mean one of the things where you've had a huge influence and uh and And one of the ones that I think is pretty dear to a lot of New Zealanders too. Uh, and we've got the sanctuary or we had the sanctuary. Do we still have the sanctuary under what the Japanese were proposing? yeah the, the 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 sanctuary still exists
1: um, and. Uh it, because of the rules of the International Whaling Commission, it would be very difficult to reverse it. We needed a three-quarters majority to agree the sanctuary. Right. We now need a three-quarters majority to cancel the sanctuary. Which would be a lot harder to a get together. A lot So in that sense, and the, the, some, something like two-thirds of the world's oceans are uh, in some form of sanctuary. The problem we now have is that Japan has withdrawn from the International Whaling Commission. There is a plus side to that. They've actually agreed to stop their their scientific, so-called scientific whaling in the Southern Ocean. Right. They've also uh, stopped they stopping aspects of their North Atlantic and uh, North Pacific uh, whaling operations. Again, signed supposedly scientific right. whaling, uh, and th- those are pluses. Those are, are significant pluses. But the, but the quid pro quos are first of all that they have they have sought. By their own rules, to legitimise what they, what we have always called small-type coastal whaling, uh, within their 200-mile territorial sea or ec- exclusive economic zone, and they have uh, potentially created a situation where other countries will also, with, with whaling interests, will also leave the IWC and uh, will operate under informal rules agreed with countries like Japan and, and perhaps one or two others. The, one I, the ones I worry about are countries like Iceland, uh, South Korea, uh, Russia, and uh, um, uh, one or two others who still want to take whales, at least to take them as bycatch from a normal fishing activity. The interesting one will be whether Norway chooses to leave the Commission. Now, Norway is a good international citizen by any standards. Uh, We we work very closely with them at the UN and elsewhere. Um, And their whaling uh, is legal. Uh, When the global moratorium on whaling, uh, commercial whaling was agreed back in the late 1980s, Norway entered what's called an objection, a legal objection, which means they're not bound by it. So they, they are actually whaling legally under the auspices of the International Whaling Commission. We're not happy about that, but it's legal. And I, it'll be interesting to see whether they choose to leave an international organization in which they were instrumental in establishing and which they've used the rules to their proper advantage. Uh, interesting to see whether they actually stay in the commission or, or leave and join whatever grouping Japan might be contemplating.
0: Japan always claims it's a traditional thing, don't they? And Traditional
1: if you go back to the 1930s, yes. Right, but doesn't go much beyond the 1930s. No, no um, and it became particularly important to Japan in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War when they lacked protein from any other uh, reasonable source. And they were actually encouraged by MacArthur to go whaling, use some of the vessels that had previously been doing more nefarious things, in right. the, particularly in the Pacific. So... Um, Yes, there is that tradition, but apart from small type small communities which took whales on a or dolphins often on a fairly opportunistic basis, there wasn't much tradition. But but there's a real issue for Japan. Japan as a country is acutely aware of food safety issues. Right. Um, and there were some scandals, food safety scandals in the nineteen sixties, and there is a very real and understandable concern about the safety of food that's sold. Uh, to uh, japanese consumers um, they uh, they have they acknowledge their scientists acknowledge that whales cetaceans soak up every nasty in the ocean pcbs mercury uh, rubber oil uh, anything that's there they soak it up uh, and, and indeed uh, there are places in the world where if whales die and are beached and die they're buried in toxic waste dumps uh, they are not good, safe eating. So is- and, 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 and the Japanese population, uh, less than 1% of uh, the meat consumed is, is whale meat. Right. So that, th- there's an
0: awareness of the difficulty. Of, yeah. of
1: the-, the, the, the thing's driven politically right. as much as anything else. The Japan Fisheries Agency promotes the cause, tries right. to get whale meat into school, lunches and things like that.
0: Right. Because traditionally, Norway would have been one of the... The big international whaling groups, I suspect, weren't they? As indeed the Americans were at one stage, weren't they? Oh, and New Zealand. Yes. In fact, we were early days. We were settled by whalers and people weren't.
1: One of the first industries apart from brewing in New Zealand was was whaling. Right. Uh, And uh, people in the northern hemisphere wouldn't believe the stories that came back from uh, our part of the world about the whale populations in places like Wellington Harbour. Right. uh, Where just occasionally you do see a few whales, but today it's... It's very different. But have
0: you kept up with it? What's happening to the whale population today?
1: Whale populations <laughs> increase or recover very slowly. The average whale might, um, female whale might uh, have a calf once every four years or
0: thereabouts.
1: Gosh. So you've actually got populations that can increase naturally by perhaps 1% per annum if there is no human intervention. Right. So... So let's assume. Let's assume no, even no commercial whaling, the population isn't going to recover very much from where it was uh, fifty or hundred years ago. The biomass of uh, whales in the Southern Ocean and uh, in the Southern Hemisphere is uh, something like ten percent of what it was hundred years ago.
0: Gosh, so it's gone downhill pretty, pretty yes, quickly. Yes, and it doesn't recover quickly. That's the right. critical issue. So, what's the future looking like? Have you got a view? I think it's a bit too early to see
1: what happens. Uh, Japan will uh, undertake its small-type coastal whaling. Uh, It has abandoned Southern Ocean scientific whaling, and the fact that they they suddenly don't need to undertake this scientific research anymore is is actually very telling. Right. Um, And they're not going to be taking uh, the the whales in the the North uh, Pacific. Uh, That's a good thing but they will be taking whales in their territorial sea, which countries like New Zealand and the United States and others don't do.
0: Right, because we've got things like the tuna stocks. I think someone mentioned that four out of the five tuna stocks are, are under threat. And um... This argument
1: and this uh, this issue doesn't just focus on whaling, although whaling is one of the more emotional right. uh, issues. Um, the, the, the southern bluefin tuna uh, fishery is... Uh, considerably at risk it's not an area of my expertise right but i am acutely aware of the problems there
0: right. how did you get involved in the whaling commission originally uh,
1: i was leader of the opposition in the mid-1980s and japan the japanese prime minister of the day came to new zealand and i had to meet with him as is the standard practice and i uh, it was about the time when the um global moratorium was being debated in the whaling commission and i took him on on it uh, and I got some publicity in the New Zealand media about that, and Don McKinnon remembered that. <laughs> and um, when he had to appoint a new
0: uh, whaling commissioner, he rang and asked me if I'd do it. And then you, you've had this period, this of course, must have been quite a fascinating period, the United Nations. So where did that come from, and how did you get involved there? Again, um, Minister of Foreign Affairs, in this case Murray
1: McCulley, uh, wanted to appoint someone outside the norm. Uh, and uh, asked me if I would consider the role. It was made all the more complicated by the fact that at that stage, this I'm talking now back uh, uh, 2009, uh, at that stage we were uh, in the very early uh, phase of a campaign for a seat on the United Nations Security Council. Uh, There are five permanent members and uh, ten non-permanent members, and the ten non-permanents are... Rotate on a two yearly basis right. on the council. So we were looking for a two yearly term, having previously had one in the early nineteen nineties. Uh, and he wanted someone to front that campaign. That would have been a bit of fun to do, was it? It was fun, but m- my goodness, it was hard work. Um, I, uh, I've, I would, I had to eat for New Zealand. <laughs> Every, every every day, every day I, I go to lunch at a restaurant over the road from my office to entertain an ambassador. Um, my staff made a bit of a joke out of it. I think I might try the marinated seafood salad. <laughs> it was the sm- smallest appetizer and the cheapest one on the on on the menu. Sometimes I'd go across the road at twelve o'clock right. for one lunch. And then across the road to another restaurant at one fifteen for a, for a second lunch. Good grief! Um, and you had to watch that very very carefully. Was there I mean, a
0: budget set up for doing
1: this? Or was there that... was, but it was um, it it, w- it was um, I, I I was able to to do all those things. I didn't have to worry about how many marinated seafood <laughs> salads I, saying, I could like, have. Get a bit tough after a while, wouldn't it? <laughs> but I've got to say this: that we didn't spend any extra money on that campaign. It was all done within the within the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, a budget,
0: because we've had people involved in the United Nations. Les Monroe, so Leslie Monroe, or came even as before one of that, them, yeah. you
1: know, go back to Carl Berenson, go back to Peter Fraser, right, um, who led the opposition to the uh, Security Council veto for the permanent members. Right, uh, it was the only issue put to the vote, and we we led that opposition, and we and we still oppose. The idea that those five have permanent, uh, the five permanent members have a veto.
0: Yes, because they have, they can stop anything.
1: Can't they can they? stop it. They can't stop a, a procedural motion. Right. It only applies to substantive motions. Right. And sometimes they get a little bit
0: stymied by somebody who does a clever. But a substantial procedure. motion, one <laughs> member. But they're pyrrhic victories. Yes, yes, yeah. One member can can stop it completely. uh well, on a substantive issue, yes, yes. yeah. And you can, you can be 14-1. one.
1: Right. And the one wins. And the something like a place on security
0: council, is it important for New Zealand to do something? I like believe
1: that? it's very important, and I think we've shown over the years why it's important. And the example that I always cite is the um, uh, Rwandan genocide of 1990, um, 1993 94. Right. Uh, when 800,000 Rwandans were butchered with, with machetes. The worst. Genocide since the Second World War, uh, and New Zealand led the uh, efforts to try and get the um, peacekeeping force reinforced, uh, and to try and get it recognised as a genocide. You see, the moment the Security Council calls it a genocide, you invoke the Genocide Convention and right. all, all the rules about. And Then
0: that. there comes war crimes and all war sorts of War crimes and climate. all of that, and
1: and and, in fairness, the the war crimes uh, the, the, the war crimes tribunals have been. Looking at these issues and convicting people,
0: and has there been much result from that?
1: Well, it's not much consolation to the eight hundred no, thousand who've killed, of course. Yes, yeah. and uh, Rwanda today is 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 a very interesting country. Um, it's where people go to see the gorillas, right? But it's uh, the gorillas in the mist we're talking about, yes. Uh, and it's 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 an amazing place, and uh, some people have described it as the Singapore of Africa. I think that probably is a few steps away yet, but it's an impressive country. I went there uh, 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 on an official visit um, after I left uh, New York and they were having a cabinet meeting the day I arrived and the uh, cabinet, it was in, uh, in front of the television cameras and every minister had to account publicly for what his department had done in the past 12 months. That would be an interesting process it to watch. It would be an interesting process to watch, and they were very acutely aware that they were being judged by their president who was sitting at the top of the table right, and by the public who could watch on television. This is a bit like the governance thing. We'd say, you know, you're here to get, give or get off. And, uh... But an interesting sideline to that. Um, the attendance by ministers at that particular cabinet meeting was compulsory. You couldn't find a... <laughs> uh, a, a, a sudden, a sudden uh, excuse appointment to go a, somewhere else. be somewhere else. Yeah. There was one exception. The minister of foreign affairs was told that she could leave to meet with the New Zealand representative.
0: That's interesting, isn't it? Um, so they obviously regarded New Zealand as a pretty influential force in that in that whole exercise, did they? They remember. Mm.
1: And that's not the only instance, I might tell you, where people have, uh, where countries that we have supported and helped over the years, over many years, right. remembered and said so.
0: We're not seen as having an axe to grind, are we? We, we don't march to the beat of anyone's drum. Right. Uh, and that's
1: something that UN countries understand. And that's why three quarters of the UN membership supported our, our Security Council campaign.
0: Right. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, because it, it obviously gets quite fractious when it, dealing with UK, US and one or two of the others, um, Russia and so on. We don't usually... Pick fights with them. Right.
1: What's the point if they've got a veto? Yes.
0: Um, <laughs> so you have to manage it in other ways. You, you've
1: got to manage it in other ways. But there are, there's a lot more happening in the world than just what
0: the, the Permanent Five might um Turn to the United Nations with. and just think about that for a moment. I mean, it was founded on this basis of being able to bring things together and no more wars or whatever, wasn't it, really? It was founded on the basis that you would bring together, that you would
1: uh, achieve, you would seek... Um, international peace and security right. through economic and social development and and through peacekeeping. Right. Um, it, it was the. It, it wasn't idealistic. Hmm. It was very practical, and some people would argue that the having the five permanent members in the council and having and giving them a veto was practical. Right. Because they were big enough to ju- to to justify doing that. But the reality is that it was the first ever attempt to beat in international agreement, to beat swords into plowshares. Right. And uh, it it was very ambitious. And when you're ambitious, sometimes you're going to fail. And that's why sometimes the UN does fail.
0: Could you – Is there's still a place for it going forward, obviously. I believe so.
1: I believe so. For all its shortcomings uh, and for all the things that don't work properly, there's a lot that's good. I mean, for instance, every day out there, there are thousands of people engaged in peacekeeping operations, 104,000 uniformed peacekeepers. That's and 14,
0: massive. It's like a small army, four, isn't 14,
1: it? Fourteen, yes, it is. I think it's the world's second or third largest standing force. Right. Um, uh, they're... they're bringing peace, they're they're, they're establishing new governance and new rule of law institutions, they're preventing HIV, they're feeding the poor, they are clearing landmines, and frankly, if there wasn't someone doing it, you'd have to invent them. Right. So it serves a really good purpose. Is the funding an issue? Yes, the Americans resent the fact that the funding formula puts them really almost with 25% of the budget.
0: They could give up their veto, of course, and have some alternative suggestions for funding, couldn't they?
1: Well, you know, what's really interesting <laughs> is that the, the most um, strident critics of the UN are to be found in the United States. And yet every year, they all turn up for the annual General Assembly. They flock to New York because they know that they need its support for issues such as Iran, uh, North Korea and the like. Right. I mean, we, we've, we've got to r- remind ourselves that ours, New Zealand is the world's eighth oldest as the world's eighth oldest national parliament. It was established before it's Canada and and established before Australia's national parliament. Right. Um, we gave Maori the vote in the 1860s. Maori males the vote. We gave all people the vote in 1893. Arguably New Zealand is the world's oldest genuine democracy. Now, try googling it because right. there's a there's room for argument right. on what actually constitutes an old democracy. But the fact is that ours is one of the oldest continually functioning democracies in the world, and we should be very proud of that.
0: I remember, I think women got the vote, I think only beaten by the state of Louisiana, if I recall correctly, or something. Well,
1: I mean, the the Isle of Man, too, I think, probably. But the reality is that um, New Zealand was the first country to give everybody the vote. My great-grandmother
0: voted in that 1893 election. It's amazing, isn't it? Just turn to one final thing, if I could, because I was fascinated. One of your more recent ones is the Palestinian Authority. What what led to the appointment there and, and, and what was the
1: requirement? Interesting piece of history. Um, virtually every country can't send an ambassador to every single country. Uh, what tends to happen is that uh, an ambassador is sent to Capital A and he, also, or, he or she also covers... Uh, three or four other capitals as well. In our case, our ambassador to Ankara in Turkey was also our ambassador to Israel, which he visited on a regular basis, but also was our representative to Palestine. Can't be an ambassador because we don't recognise it as a state. Um, uh, And uh, when our latest ambassador went to present his credentials in Israel, he was told he couldn't cover both countries or both places. Right. Uh, And... uh, I won't go into the history of whether they knew about that previously, because they did. But he um, was uh, he was told that we could appoint a third secretary in the Ankara embassy as our representative to Palestine. Well, I won't relate Minister McCulley's um, <laughs> response to that suggestion uh, in polite company. The reality is that uh, as a result, he decided that I should cover Palestine. So over about two and a half years, I regularly visited Ramallah uh, and I met with uh, senior um, um, officials in the Palestinian Authority, including President Abbas. Uh, I met with civil society, I met with uh, academics and I met with uh, with others, uh, journalists and others. I also met with people in Jerusalem Right. So I did that on a regular basis over about over about two and a half years. But that's the history of it. That's how I came to be a separate um, uh, representative to just to the Palestinian Authority, which runs the West Bank and notionally runs the um, Gaza. But Gaza, in fact, is controlled by Hamas.
0: Right. It, is there a solution to the Palestinian? Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a solution to everything. Right.
1: Um, it's getting people to the point where they agree, Come along and agree, and, that it's... Uh, agree the solution. Right. Uh, and there is a solution. It's known as the two-state solution. The idea that um, uh, an Israeli and a Palestinian state would live side by side in peace and security behind defined borders. And there's, there's a mantra right. that gets recited all the time. Uh, the reality is that it's proving very difficult to get the leadership of both countries to the point where they agree that.
0: Mm. So it's, it's an ongoing problem and will continue going for a while yet. I think so. Hmm. Jim, thank you so much. So, Jim McClay thank you for your time and thoughts today. I believe I speak for all New Zealanders when I say we're glad people of your dedication and sincerity are willing to embrace public service as you've done. Thank you. Thank you for joining me and my guest in this high-altitude conversation. If you enjoyed the show, please share this with your C-suite colleagues and rate the show on iTunes if you will. In the meantime, go well.